My name is Chad, and as I said earlier, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is, it's really a privilege to, to serve here. Uh, it's a privilege to worship the Lord alongside you, to grow uh, in our walk with the Lord together. So men, this might be more appropriate for you than uh, women, but I don't want to exclude any women who don't enjoy cooking. Um, men, if, you're, if your wife or your mom, if you're younger, if she ever unexpectedly is out for the day and she didn't prepare a meal, then it's up to you to find usually the nearest ready-made meal to serve yourself or your family uh, that day. You wanna know something funny? I found out at 5.30 a.m. this morning I was preaching. My ready-made meal for you guys is from the men's devotional I led uh, yesterday morning at men's breakfast. So if you were there, show me grace. If you weren't there, show me grace. It's fun. Um, Ross is unexpectedly sick. He, uh, he's fine, but he has a fever, and he just thought it'd be wise not to come. So hence the backups here, and I'm happy to be here. It'll be uh, memorable. I think this will be a bonding experience, don't you think, Johnny? <laughs> So we're in the book of Philippians. That's where we've been camping out at our, our men's breakfast. And that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, let me give you guys a little backdrop to the book of Philippians so that you can kind of be caught up to speed what we've been doing on our men's breakfast. The book of Philippians was written by Paul in house arrest in the city of Rome. He was uh, arrested because he was preaching the gospel and the Jews in Jerusalem vehemently disagreed with his proclamation and so they incited his arrest. And that arrest led him all the way to Rome where he's chained to royal guards, the praetorium. And he has the freedom to write and so he's doing so. And this book has some unique features to it. One of them being it's by design, paradigmatic. And what I mean by that is Paul was being persecuted for his proclamation of the gospel, hence the arrest. He was also experiencing internal opposition from those within the faith who were rivals of his in their mind, who were envious of him and who used this opportunity of Paul being in prison to jab at his side and make false accusations such as Paul is in prison because he did something wrong. God is punishing him. So that's Paul's situation, and it's paradigmatic because the Philippian church that he's writing to was in a very similar situation. They were in a city in Philippi that worshipped idols, and encouraged Caesar worship, where Caesar was Lord. Very contrary, 100% opposite of what Paul and the Philippian church is preaching, that no, Jesus is Lord. And because of the Philippian proclamation of Christ, they too were experiencing heavy persecution. Uh, and within the church, they were also experiencing some rivalry and uh, deceit and backbiting. And so Paul is saying, look, guys, I'm in the same situation you're in. 
here's how you handle it. Here's how you handle it. So as we walk through this book, as we walk through our passage this morning, we're going to have Paul cast a vision for us. He's going to extend an invitation out to all of those of us who are serving Christ with our lives, who desire... is fun. Who desire Christ's name be glorified. Now, ideally, that's all of us, but that's often not the case, and that's why we preach the Word. We need our eyes lifted off off of our own circumstance. We need our hearts convinced of a better way to live. For God's glory, yes, but our good. So, We as people naturally like to forecast the future. We watch the weatherman every evening. Why? Because we want to be prepared for tomorrow. We want to know how to properly dress ourselves, our children, if I need an umbrella. We like to have a measure of control. We like to preserve our own comfort We like to prevent trouble or chaos from coming our way if we can. We like to forecast. We like to ask, what's next? As we serve Christ, we oftentimes find ourselves in circumstances that we never could have forecasted, that we never would have asked to come our way. Trials, challenges, that press us. And as we're in that trial, as a result of simply walking with God, we still ask that question, what's next? But it's oftentimes with this attitude of, what's next, God? What's next? In our passage this morning, we're going to see Paul ask that Same question, but with a radically different attitude based on a sure ambition for Christ's honor. He will ask what's next, and with his asking and his answer, we're all going to be given an invitation to receive and step into this same type of ambition in order to have this same type of attitude that doesn't ask the Lord, what's next? But asks him, what's next, God? I'm ready. It doesn't mean the trial is easy. It doesn't mean the trial is even good. That's not what I'm saying. And this is not a prescription for how we turn trials into something good. No, that's not what I'm saying. This is a a vision that a man named Paul lived out and is passed on to the Philippians and hence us as well. So our passage is Philippians 1, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to start in verse 18, and we're going to go through 26. And in reading this, we're going to look at three things. Paul's ambition, that's the foundation. That's If there's one starting point that you need to grasp this morning. It's, it's that ambition, 
that Paul had. So that's the first point. Second is his desired outcome of the trial. And the third is his expected outcome. And as you read through this, know that we're talking for Paul about a literal trial before a Roman court that could mean the difference between life and death for him. At this point, he doesn't know if he will be executed. So read with me. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So our first point is Paul's ambition, and we're going to really see this in verses 18 through 20. And as I said, it's the foundation for his attitude in this whole ordeal. Uh, As we Christians, as we continue to seek Christ, no, no matter the trial, oftentimes especially through the trial, as we continue to seek Christ, that he would be glorified through us, in us, we can be confident that he will indeed be glorified in us, through us. He will indeed be honored by our lives in the midst of that trial, no matter what happens next, no matter what happens at the conclusion of that trial, no matter how long that trial is, if our focus, if our ambition for people to see Christ through me in this time, that will indeed happen. And this gives Paul reason to rejoice. So we see Paul's what's next here in these verses is one of rejoicing. He's looking ahead at the conclusion of this literal trial for him, whichever way it falls, because his ambition was Christ's glory, not his preservation. Paul's ambition was Christ be known, not keep me safe. That's Paul's ambition. This passage that we just read, it's actually framed top to bottom in this word rejoice or joy. So it's, it's outlined for us a key theme that Paul wants the Philippians to catch and us as well about what it means to serve Christ in the midst of a trial. In our, our uh, first one, verse 18, it's future tense. Verse 18 says, yes, I will rejoice. So this is his what's next. As he's thinking about what's next, it gives him cause to rejoice, which is amazing. It's very countercultural. It's very counter-human. But Paul had 
and ambition that we are going to continue to uh, expound upon. So why was Paul so confident that he would rejoice? As I said, it's his ambition, and we're going to begin digging into that in verses 19 through 20 here. Uh, In verse 19, we see this word deliverance. Do you guys see that word in your text? Deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance. Now, your Bible might have a footnote that says we could translate this either as salvation or vindication. If you were to do some study on this word, you would find that this word used by Paul throughout all of his writings is, in fact, salvation. It's related to his relationship with God in a spiritual sense. It's not dealing with his physical deliverance from prison. Uh, Many commentators see this as a quotation from Job chapter 13, verse 16. And Job is in the same situation Paul's in. Job had lived a righteous life and come upon extremely hard times. Lost his children. Lost all of his belongings. Lost his reputation. Lost his wealth. And by Paul quoting this verse, he's saying, look, this is going to work out for my vindication. I'm not in this trial because I did something wrong. I'm in this trial because God desires to use me for the glory of Christ, and I'm going to let him do that. I'm going to let him do that. And besides, I know that it's not going to merely clear my name. That's not what Paul's really getting after here. He's not looking for him to be declared righteous or innocent. What he's looking for is the name of Christ, the message of Christ that I've been preaching, that I'm living for, that I'm willing to suffer for. It's true. And you will find that out one day, so he says. It'll be vindicated in some sense if I'm declared innocent at the earthly trial and set free. That way all who opposed him said, well, I guess Paul is innocent. But even if he's executed on the last day, Christ will say Paul's message was true. Paul's message was true. Paul will be vindicated. He knows that this earthly trial will work towards his vindication for the honor of Christ, for the gospel that we believe, that we proclaim, that we live out, that oftentimes, sometimes leads us to trials because we choose to suffer for Christ's sake rather than go another way and alleviate that suffering. So I want to explain this process a little bit more. And I don't want it to be formulaic, but I want you to understand that that God does work with us in certain ways. And it's helpful for us to understand that as we walk with him, as we desire to, to know him, as we desire to depend upon him, that he might see us through whatever trial it is that he's allowed us to land in or led us into. So I'm going to show you how this works, how Paul's ambition uh, works in such a way that it leads to this ability to rejoice. I'm going to be putting things together from verse 18 uh, through 20. And so just listen to me as I, as I point some things out. By the means of the saints' prayers and the, the Spirit of Christ's help, look in verse 19. We see that your prayers, that's the prayer of the saints, and we see help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is the means by which Paul is depending on in the midst of this trial. 
He's not a lone soldier. The saints are praying for him. And he's not Superman. He's dependent on the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is the fuel that leads him to this ambition and this attitude. And we see it leads to this confidence. In verse 19, we see that he says, For I know. And then he pairs that up in verse 20 with these phrases, eagerly expects and hopes. So based on the prayer of the saints, the help of the Holy Spirit, he knows, he eagerly expects and he hopes that at his upcoming Roman trial, he will be full of courage. Verse 20, full of courage. Now, this this terminology, full of courage, when paired with the gospel, it has to do with clear proclamation. Paul's asking the saints to pray for him. Paul's asking the Spirit to help him so that he might boldly and clearly proclaim the gospel at his trial. That's his ambition. And he gets to that point because of the prayer of the saints, because of the help of the Spirit of Christ. And we see his final purpose there in verse 20. As always, Christ will be honored in my body. This is a man who had been captivated by the beauty of Jesus. And we're all on that journey. None of us have arrived. We're all in process of our imaginations, our hearts being captivated by the beauty of Jesus. So much so that no matter our circumstance, our eyes are on his name being proclaimed. So much so that when you suffer, people somehow get a glimpse of his goodness in you through that. That's Paul's heart. That's his ambition. And we see it go all the way into death. In verse 20, he adds this phrase, whether by life or by death. For Paul, it's a win-win. If he goes into the trial boldly proclaiming the gospel and is released, that's a win. If he goes into the trial and boldly proclaims Christ and is executed, that's a win because it's for Christ and he's in Christ's hands and he understands that. And he's going to flesh out that a little bit more here as we continue on. You know, an important side note, it's just a theological tidbit that I have found helpful in my own walk that we can see here in Paul's terminology. It's God's sovereign choice to choose to deliver his children from trials or to deliver his children unto himself through the trial. In both situations, we are delivered. As a child of God, secure in Christ, you can have that hope that no matter the severity of the trial, God will deliver you either from it or through it unto himself. That's a confidence that only comes from knowing Christ. It's an unshakable foundation For my family and I, when we were serving in Ethiopia, war broke out unexpectedly. We were sent home against our own wishes. It was not our desire. I wish I could say that when I was home, I had this same attitude of Paul. What's next, God? I trust you. I love you. I know you're doing something in this. It's going to lead to your glory. My ambition is your glory. No, we came home 
We got COVID, this was a year ago. Didn't have a home, didn't know what was next, constantly asking, what's next, God? It's very natural. But you know what I learned in that? I learned that the more I focused on myself, the less joy and peace I had. It was really robbing me of contentment. Now, I want to be cautious here. I don't want to transpose my trials upon you. Some trials are such that you just need lots and lots of time to sit with God, to sit with your brothers and sisters, to seek counsel professionally. So I don't want this to come across as formulaic. I just want you to see that it's, it's an invitation. And each of us has a different path of getting to that point of being able to ask God what's next in a manner in which Paul does that we're seeing here. And when you find yourself in a trial, don't ever, ever tell yourself, I can pick myself up by my bootstraps and get through this. No, this is, that's when you reach out to your brothers for prayer. That's when you reach out to professional help. That's when you ask the spirit of Jesus Christ to strengthen you ultimately so that Christ will be honored. So that's Paul's ambition. I recognize sometimes I can come across pretty heavy, so please forgive me with that. Let's look now at Paul's desired outcome. This is what, if Paul could choose, this is what Paul would select for his desired outcome. And what we see here is that because of Christ's death on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead, death for us as believers is, is a doorway into the presence of Jesus. Death for the believer is a doorway into the presence of Jesus. And for Paul, we see that in verses 21 through 24, where his preferred outcome, his, his preferred what next, is actually to be in the presence with Christ, for him to, in fact, be executed at the conclusion of his trial. It truly was a win-win for Paul, even in the midst of facing death. And we see that summarized so clearly in verse 21. Look at verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's a beautiful verse. One commentator said, if Paul would not have written these words himself, we surely could write them about him today. If you just look through this man's life, he was a man that for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. And we see that here as he's waiting his trial. Christ was the lens by which he saw all of life, good and bad. Christ was the measuring stick by which he measured all of life. No blessing was greater than the blessing of knowing Christ. Uh, for him, as if we were to continue in this book, for him and for us, the prize that he was striving for, the prize that he was eager to finally receive in the fullness form, was to know Jesus, to be in the presence of Jesus. That's the relational element that we have as Christians. We are in a relationship with our Creator whose heart is for us. Paul understood that. And he lived for Him. 
He pressed in constantly to know Jesus. And because of that ambition, for him to be in the very presence of Jesus, that was the prize. In seminary, there was a professor named Dr. Steve Strauss. He actually started the Bible college in Ethiopia that I at one, at one time taught at. Great man, loved the Lord. When I was in seminary, Dr. Strauss was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. It was, it was very challenging for us as students to face that reality that we might lose a man that we looked up to and loved and who poured into us and who had set for us an example of how to live for Christ. I'll never forget that in one of my classes, unrelated to Dr. Strauss, a separate class, I walked in that morning, and there was the professor of that class, as well as Dr. Strauss, sitting right beside him. We as students didn't know what to expect, and then the professor of that course said, students, Today, we're going to do something a little differently. Today, I want you to ask Dr. Strauss any question you want. It was a challenge for us to keep our emotions in check. I decided to ask Dr. Strauss his what's next. I asked him, Dr. Strauss, as you're, as you're approaching death's doorway, what are you thinking about? How do you feel? He said, after a long pause, staring straight at me, making me feel very uncomfortable, making me feel like perhaps I shouldn't have been so bold, he said, Chad, the more I think about Jesus, the more I want to be with him. The more I think about my Savior, the more I want to be with him. I imagine for Dr. Strauss, equally true to this in some sense was these verses that we see in 23 and 24 where Paul says, I am hard pressed between the two. Verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. This is a man who blessed us. This is a man who was married with children. This is a man who had a very fruitful ministry, who as un, against his own control, he was approaching death's doorway. It forced him to ponder his what's next, and his what's next was to be with Christ is the best. That's the prize. Now, to be clear, Paul and Dr. Strauss, they both were not fatalistic. It wasn't a, well, this is, this, is, this is my next step. I have no choice in the matter. I'm resigned to it. No, Dr. Strauss went through chemo. He went through radiation. He had his doctors treat him the best to their ability. He had people praying for him. And we see the same with Paul. Paul. Paul went to trial to defend himself. So the what next was one of confident hope. 
eager expectation that Christ would be honored, whether by life or by death. And as both Dr. Strauss and Paul approached the doorsteps of death, they caught a glimpse of Christ that perhaps we have not, perhaps I have not, as I've not been in that circumstance. But the view that he got of Christ, the view that Paul had of Christ, it captivated his imagination. It propelled him forward. So that was their desired outcome. That was Paul's desired outcome. But that was not necessarily his expected outcome. What we see with this is at the outcome of our earthly trials, as we seek Christ, as Christ leads us into trials, we can expect a certain outcome. And I'm not speaking of life or death. I'm speaking if Christ delivers you and preserves your life in the midst of that trial, it's for a purpose. It's so that God can use you, perhaps in unique ways of serving others. Serving others. And we see that clearly in our verses 25 and through 26. That Paul's expected outcome was to be released from prison and reunited with the church in Philippi. The church he planted. The church that he was building up. Why? That's not what Paul wanted, but that was what was best for them regarding their walks with God, regarding their sanctification. The key phrase I want you guys to see in this section, Paul's expected outcome, is verse 25. Verse 25 says this, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress and joy in the faith. Progress in the faith. What does that mean? Progress in the faith is sanctification. Progressive sanctification. Which happens in community around God's word. What we see here is God desires to use us for the good of others, for the progress of their faith that oftentimes you uniquely can do as you come alongside someone. You often are unique in your ability to connect with that person and to help them in their progress with the faith, oftentimes because of the trial that you endured, not exclusively, but oftentimes. But there's one more truth I want you to, to catch in this phrase. Based on the Greek construction, this phrase, progress for the faith, let me find it. Verse 25, for your progress and joy in the faith. What we see here is a linking together of progress in your faith with joy. There's a a linking together with progress in the faith and joy. And what that does is that makes joy a result of our progress in the faith. Joy is not something we can wrestle out of this broken world. It's not something we can grasp through our own seeking of it. 
No, Paul tells us in Galatians, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. He says it in so many ways in this phrase. That as we in community progress in the faith, help one another grow towards Christ's likeness, no matter the circumstances, joy follows. We can catch those moments of joy when we pour ourselves out for others. Knowing this reality, knowing that no matter the trial, that through the prayers of the saints, the help of the Spirit of Christ, we can honor Christ. Knowing that, knowing that once you're on the other side of the trial, or even in the midst of it, you can serve others for the progress of their faith and receive joy. Knowing that reality, it's an invitation for us to step into this with Christ being our lens our ambition, our focus. Joy is inexplicably caught by the Christian who is seeking the honor of Christ. When we grasp it, it slips out of our hands, seeking it in the world's ways. That's really my encouragement for us this morning is that let's follow Christ into these trials, seeking his glory and the growth of our brothers and sisters. And then we inexplicably catch joy. Our focus is him, it's his glory. Our brothers and sisters are his. We're for their good. But he loves us. He's for us. And it's in the midst of seeking him through the trial for his glory, for the growth of our brothers and sisters that we inexplicably catch joy. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word which teaches us, which is for our good, which we need apart from you giving us revelation of who you are, how we can conduct ourselves in a manner that allows the gift of joy, the fruit of joy to come our way. That, that's reason to rejoice. I pray for all of us, no matter the trial we are in, I pray that you would help us to keep our focus on Christ, that we, like Paul, would see him as the prize, that to live would be Christ and to die gain. I pray that your spirit would help us, the spirit of Jesus Christ, that he would help us, that he would direct our eyes to your son, that our ambition might be to honor him. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.